this from others or maybe a collective groan. Your body may start to hurt, your legs start to ache as you think about even running that far. There are those of you that if we entered the race, you would be in your element. You would run this race well. There'd be others that would struggle. And then maybe you're like me, you're somewhere in the middle. At the start of the race, and when there's people cheering on the sides, you're running full stride. But as soon as no one's around and there's no hype, you just start to walk very slowly. Don't worry, we don't have any race today. But what if I told you in reality that there is a race that each of us has been entered into? Not a half marathon, but a lifelong race as a Christian. And what's different about this race is that we're not competing against one another. We're competing for the prize, to obtain the prize. So we're going to see today in Paul's letters to the Philippians church that he uses the analogy of a runner to describe a Christian spiritual development, their growth in Christ-likeness. And on this race, there are two ditches on either side of the road. One ditch is self-righteous perfectionism, thinking that we've already arrived at the goal. We're kind of like the hare in Aesop's fable who takes a nap uh, in the race with a turtle. We think we don't need to sweat further because we've already attained it. We're good. And the other ditch that we can fall into is to just drop out of the race entirely. To go after other things, to think that this prize is not worth attaining or, or that you'll never reach it. So you might as well quit and pursue what is most enjoyable. Pursue what is most pleasurable, what is, what is easiest and comfortable, or brings you the most happiness. As you think about your life this morning, which ditch are you most prone to fall into? Thinking that you are good and already arrived? Or maybe even misusing the promises of God so that you fail to see your need to strive after him? Or are you prone to drop out of the race entirely? Like a failed New Year's resolution, prone to distraction, giving yourself up to self-gratification and the pleasures that this world has to offer. As Christians, no matter our age or our growth, we have not obtained our goal of being completely like Christ. And so we continue after it. We continue to pursue it. Even when we run into ditches, we dust ourselves up, we get back on the road, and we press on. Let's pray this morning together that we would see clear eyes, with clear eyes the race that has been set before us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us. We thank you that we have a new hope in you, a new race to run, Lord, uh, one that is eternally fulfilling, one that gives us joy and hope and in this present life and in the life to come, Lord. Help us today to see your worthiness, Lord. And anything that is of me, I pray, would fall silent. And anything that is of you would penetrate our hearts and change our lives this morning. We need you. We need your power. In your name we pray. Amen. In our text today, Paul is exhorting the church in Philippi to run the race before them. Paul loves them. He wants them to live a life that is given in pursuit of the greatest treasure that they could ever attain. A life of joy and true fulfillment found in the one who made them, who designed them. And he does this in three ways. He gives them the fuel needed to run the race. He tells them about the habits, the practices that, he needs, that they need to put in place to obtain the prize. 
And then lastly, he gives them the coaching needed to cross the finish line. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, we're in chapter 3. I'm about to read it in its entirety for a minute, but I encourage you to follow along in your Bibles. We'll see the fuel to run the race in verse 12, the practice to obtain the prize in verses 13 and 14, and the coaching to cross the finish line in verses 15 and 16. I'll read it for us now. Chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul talks about his status and mindset in verse 12. He's not already obtained it. He's pressing on to make Jesus Christ his own. This is Paul who's walked with the Lord for nearly 30 years at this point in his life. Who who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Who's currently imprisoned for preaching this gospel. He has every reason to boast about his spiritual accomplishments. And yet he's honest about where he's at in this race. This man who's given his life following after Christ, says that he has not obtained it. He has room to grow. He's not perfect. He's still a sinner who struggles to love Jesus as he should. But he doesn't let this discourage him. No, he presses on to make it his own. The word pressing on is used by sprinters to refer to aggressive, energetic action. Paul pursues his growth in Christ with all his might. He strains every spiritual muscle in pursuit of this goal, and he presses on to make it his own. Why does he do this? We see it in the next line. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Prior to this time in Paul's life, before he had had any resolve to follow after Christ, actually when he was sprinting away from him in the opposite direction, when he hated Christianity, when he's killing Christians... God knew that he would do a work in Paul's life, that he would change Paul's heart, and that he would make him his own. This is the good news. This is the gospel. That although we were in sin, running away from God, deserving of punishment in hell, Jesus ran the race of this life perfectly, never sinning, and he gave up his life, taking on the sins of his people on himself, suffering the penalty we deserved so that all who would turn from their sins and trust in his sacrificial work on the cross will be saved. But Jesus' finish line, it did not end at death. In a miracle of God, he was brought back to life. He was resurrected, showing that he has power over all sin and death, and that he's ultimately worthy of all our trust and our worship. In our own strength, We can't run the race that God requires. We are dead in our sins, the Bible says. But when we stop trying and trust in his perfect righteousness, 
He makes us his own. He adopts us as his children, changes us so that we see his ultimate worth and we can run now full stride for his glory. This is the fuel to run the race. He has made us his own. Every Christian has been purchased by a great price. We see in 1 Corinthians 6.19, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are not our own. To come and do as we please, to live life as we please, we have been redeemed by Christ. Every person on the face of the earth owes their life and their well-being to the king of the universe, whether they acknowledge it or not. The sin of humanity was so ugly, but the love of God was so great that he would send his son to earth to die so that we might have life. And something really neat here is that in Paul's argument and by his example, Paul is threading this needle, fighting against both pitfalls of workspace religion and license to do whatever we please. One side trying to earn their salvation by their own merits, and the other side living however they want, as if God doesn't call him to, call Christians to live for him. He presses on to obtain this right standing before God. I'm sorry, he presses on not to obtain a right standing before God. He already has that in Jesus purchasing him. He presses on to live out and realize the full potential of what he already has in Christ. If you are his, you have both a great inheritance and a great responsibility. An inheritance to be gloried in and not to be squandered and a responsibility not to be dismissed. As we seek to apply these truths to our lives, one thing that pops out to me in this text is that hope is the fuel for try. Hope is the fuel for try. Hope allows us to move forward and to try things without fear of failure. Hope allows us to take risk and to put ourselves out there knowing that we are secure in him. It enables us to share our faith with others, to lean into each other's lives with vulnerability, to, to love sacrificially and give of ourselves as Christ did. And Christians, we have hope in abundance. We have truckloads of hope. A sure hope in the one who is always faithful to his promises. One big area of hope that every Christian can claim today is that God will always be with us in our efforts. Just listen to what the Bible has to say about God being with his people. You don't have to look very far in God's word. But Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And in our mission to make disciples, the Great Commission, we do, uh, all Christians are given, we're to be teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In all our efforts, he is always with us. Isn't that a beautiful thing this morning, Christians? 
We do not run this race alone. Another big hope that we can cling to is no matter our past, no matter our failures or our weakness, God's eternal plan is that we become like him. Romans 8.29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. Because we are his, he will mold us. He will grow us in Christ's likeness, slowly but surely becoming more and more like him, becoming who he made us to be. Take hold of this. Press on to make this your own. Let this infinite hope that we have in Christ be our fuel for try. We've seen the fuel to run the race. Now let's turn our attention to the practice to obtain the prize in verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul once again acknowledging he has not arrived. He's not at the highest standard of godliness. He is not yet fully mature and grown in Christ. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In Paul's pursuit of Jesus, one thing he does, one thing he says to do, he boils sanctification down to this simple action, controlling where he puts his focus. He forgets what lies behind, and this is twofold here. Paul forgets both the good and the bad, his past spiritual accomplishments and his past failures and regrets. And this doesn't mean that they don't exist anymore, uh, like he's lobotomized or something, or, or he never thinks sentimentally about the past. No, it means that when they might become a distraction, he emphatically chooses to disregard them. He does not let his mind dwell on the past in an unhelpful way. He doesn't uphold his race bibs, his medals and trophies from past races saying, look at what I've achieved. I no longer need to strive anymore. I've accomplished so much. I don't need to try so hard now. He also does not dwell on his past failings. He puts those behind him. And can you imagine just how heart-wrenching the past failings of Paul would be? If you're familiar with the life of Paul, before God saved him, and changed his heart, radically changed him. He was actively persecuting the church. He was going around kidnapping, murdering Christians. If you just look at Acts chapter 9, you will see Paul, the, the, how, he, how he was going after Christians, and how easily these things would have haunted him. The people he's ministering to now, they were probably reminders of his past sins family members that have lost loved ones due to his actions. When it comes to forgetting what lies behind, how good are you at this? How often do you let your past dictate your present and your future? Are you one to rest on your past accomplishments of the Christian life? Maybe at one time you made a commitment to follow Christ or you were really excited about Jesus. And that has faded. Maybe you were baptized or you prayed a prayer and this has been what you've rested on or, or trusted in as your right standing before God. You grew up in the right family. You, you cling to the faith you held as a child, but this really doesn't define who you are today or what you are living for. Or maybe you let your past haunt you. 
You know your failings all too well. You know the areas you have fallen short, regrets, compromises that you have been made. And instead of focusing on the mercies of Christ and the forgiveness that he offers, you dwell on your shortcomings. You dwell on the inconsistencies in your life, your, your lack of faithfulness. Instead of seeing a growth area or weakness and seeking to push forward in the race, that weakness becomes the area of focus. It starts to define you. And like running in quicksand, you get bogged down. One that gets me, I think about all the time, is all the time I have wasted. Listen, I don't have many skill, skills, but wasting time, I was a prodigy. I was, you know, you find study buddies, people to go study with. I was the person you found if you wanted to go not study, but look like you were studying. All those things I could have learned, all those things I could have applied or, or knowledge I could have had, and just, you just think about all the tools you could have had in your toolkit. But um, as, I, as I think about in our specific context as a church in Covenant Hope, one temptation I could see for all of us is a new church plant who's left a prior church and left a prior community is being distracted by the friends in the community that we once had. And dwelling on that rather than the community that we have been given here. Or legacy, remembering the days that used to be. And not focusing on what God has given you now and being faithful to it. Continually looking back and not embracing the present and what we have now. Dwelling on our past hinders our present efforts. Just imagine the runner in a race with their head continually looking over their shoulder. Or someone driving down the road, instead of looking in their windshield, they're just fixed in on their rearview mirror. They would not well, they would not meet their destination, and it's not going to end well for that driver or that runner. If we have submitted our lives to Christ and accepted this free gift of salvation, no matter our past, we can be assured that we are clean. Paul knew he was forgiven. That's the only way he's able to move forward and to operate. Otherwise, it would be so devastating. Loving churches where you are responsible for the death of some of those people. Paul understood what we read in Psalm 103, 12. As far as, as, far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. Christ washes our sins clean. Our past no longer defines us. Instead, we're able to forge ahead in our new identity, a new identity walking in the righteousness that God gives us. Listen to the mindset Paul possesses in 1 Corinthians 4, 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, hey, I'm not worried about your judgment or even my judgment. It's God who's the ultimate judge. In regards to our past failures and accomplishments, or of what others think about us, or what we even think of ourselves, what matters most is what God thinks about us. And in the mindset of not looking back, Paul instead strains forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting gives him the freedom to look clearly into the future. His life is purposeful, 
always aiming towards his goal. Once again, he's not running this race to get God's approval. He already has that as a new creation in Christ. His prize is guaranteed because of God's determination, not Paul's. But Paul wants it in his fullness, both in this life and in the life to come. And he's not yet contained this complete conformity to Christ walking to the cross. So he presses on and he wants to know Jesus in all his glory. We see verse 14. Paul presses on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Some translations say high calling of God or heavenward call. Always calling us upward to live in righteousness and to be with him one day in heaven. A relationship we enjoy now and a relationship we anticipate enjoying in all its fullness when we finish our race. Instead of treats or a beer at the end of the finish line, we get Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you don't see what all the fuss is about. Why is Jesus a prize that we would run so hard after? The short answer is that we were made to be with him. He is our God who knit each of us together in our mother's wombs. Our eternal father who loves us and cares for us even when the world would reject us. And if we look closely at humanity, we begin to see that every person on the faith face of the earth is already running a race. They are all in pursuit of something. They may be chasing fulfillment in their possessions or fulfillment in pleasures or fulfillment in accomplishments or relationships, but these things are not made to fulfill us. So like running again and again like a gerbil wheel, so many run with all this activity but never attaining what they are seeking. Our hearts are continually discontent because they long for something more. The good things of this world were not meant to be ultimate objects of our trust and worship. The gifts of creation, they're meant to point us to the giver, to the creator. And when we turn and find fulfillment in things apart from God, in our search for gratification, God lets us have what we desire. We read uh, in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is an empty existence. In our sin, we've settled for worshiping the things of creation when instead we are meant for the creator. Our problem is instead of running the race in pursuit of the goodness and beauty found in God, we run after the objects we worship. These, these little gods in our lives that have replaced the true God. What prize are you in pursuit of this morning? Where, what draws your attention, your affections, your time? your money. The promise that all other things can give us will not satisfy. Don't run this unfulfilling, never satisfied race of the world. The race without Christ only leads to death. Turn from your sins. Trust in Jesus. Give your life to him and you will run with a newfound eternal hope and purpose. 
God gives us his word to show us where life is found. And more than that, he gives us himself in this relationship, and it's greater than any other. He will never fail you. He will never not show up. Even when we trip and fall, he heals our wounds. He picks us up and he carries us over the finish line. The world cries out, make your own self-worth. And the gospel cries out, in Christ, you are worthy. And to my Christian brothers and sisters, maybe your affections have dulled. And you have a hard time seeing the beauty of this relationship that you have been given. I want to remind you of the prize. Not a prize of wealth and health, that everything will be great. And you can live your best life now. No, the prize of knowing God who will see you through to the end. And the greater prize to come all eternity with him in paradise. We have a hard time even imagining this glory of God. And all our creativity and imagination, his greatness eludes us. We see this in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, what no, eye, I, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus is the prize. Every tear wiped away, all wrongs righted, perfect justice and love. And this changes how we live. This changes how we orient our lives. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Do you know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run so that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Competitors in the game, they, they would win a contest, they would receive a wreath as their prize. But it won't last. It will shrivel up and fade away. But Christians, our prize is imperishable. It will never lose its value. Some of you may be familiar with the great runner Eric Liddell. He's portrayed in the classic movie Chariots of Fire. He ran so fast, his nickname was the Flying Scotsman. He's a devout Christian, and much to the disdain of many onlookers, he refused to race in the 100-meter race in the Olympic final when it was announced that this race would take place on a Sunday. So many people were upset with him. He, he was the country's only hope of winning a gold medal. This would be like Michael Phelps in his prime saying he's not going to swim in the Olympics. How could he do this? He was the projected winner, the clear favorite to win the gold medal. But because of his religious conviction to not race on the Sabbath, he forfeited the championship run. He could have had so much glory on his way to gold. But he wasn't primarily after an Olympic gold medal. More than that, he valued the glory of God, the relationship with his Savior, and he held true to his convictions to not compete on the Lord's Day, even when it would cost him a gold medal. That gold medal was not his ultimate prize. But get this, although it was a long shot, he realized that the final for the 400-meter race was not on Sunday. We're talking about Olympic racing. 
If you know anything about the Olympics, athletes train for years for their specific event. And yes, 100 meter and 400 meter, they're both running, but they're very different. Different preparation is required, uh, different training, different technique. With only a short time to prepare, and although it was laughable to all the commentators and pundits around him, and although he was placed in the worst lane since he was a late addition, Eric Liddell ran and won the 400 meter race. And he set a world record for the fastest time. Soon after this, though, he would retire from running. And he'd go on to China to be a missionary, to spend his life telling others about Jesus. It was a dangerous time in China as Japan had invaded. And he stayed taking care of children in war camps. He would tend to the sick. He would preach the gospel. He would play games and entertain the children giving hope to those impacted by the devastation of war. And even when he had the opportunity to leave and go back to America, he chose to stay for them. He chose to stay and to care for these kids. And he'd later give his life at the age of 43 in service to those that God had called him to. Surely Eric knew that there was a greater treasure to be had than the comforts of this earth. He knew of an eternal one, one that will never fade in service to his king. He was looking forward in pursuit of the prize, pouring out his life as a servant just like Christ did. As we seek to apply this to our lives, here are a few takeaways for us to consider. First, we must cultivate concentration in looking forward. As I was reflecting in the last couple weeks, I was thinking about all our obligations, our jam-packed schedule, and all the traveling that we were doing. We can do so many things. We can go almost anywhere. Technology allows us to be constantly connected to so much. In our American context, we're just blessed to have so much. So many pleasures and opportunities at our fingertips. We can even just pick up and move somewhere because we feel like it. But just because we can do all these things doesn't mean we should. How easily our privileges become distractions. How easily we can have a focus problem. In Paul's pursuit of Christ, he has his eyes on the prize. His goal is always before him. Running the race of faith demands this concentration on the finish line. It doesn't matter where Paul's doing great in the church or whether Paul's in prison in jail. His eyes, his focus is, is on the finish line. If you were to ask any professional athlete their training regimen, they would be able to tell you their intentional diet, their sleep schedule, their, how many days a week they run or lift or rest. It would involve saying no to other things that don't come in line with their goals. As Christians, we should be able to have the same diligence because more than just health, we're reminded in 1 Timothy 4 to have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Sure, we should be good stewards of our body, but godliness is of value in every way in this life now and 
for all of eternity. This should be our priority. No one just drifts towards holiness. In fact, they drift away from it. Sanctification does not permit standing still spiritually. For those of you that play video games, you know what happens when you stand still. You die. Our spiritual lives should be marked by commitment, effort, dedication to our goal. We must seize every opportunity to grow in our faith always with the eyes on the finish line. Another takeaway for us is that receiving Christ is a lifetime adventure. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Let's not get impatient with our lack of progress. Maturity takes time. So many analogies, you think about in the Bible, they're, they're in an agrarian society, and so many of them involve growing plants or crops. Growing plants takes time. You can't just dump fertilizer on it and expect it to be fully mature. It takes tending to, sunlight, watering, care. And so much growth can result in us taking small steps day by day to meet God in his word, to go to him in prayer, treating others as we would like to be treated and living in community. You don't see many couch to marathon plans, but you see several couch to 5K running plans. It's a lifelong adventure. As we reflect again on the life of Eric Liddell, one more neat thing about him is that he famously said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Meaning that when he ran, his running was not in opposition to his love for God. It was actually interwoven with it. God had made him to run just as God had called him to be a missionary. And when he ran, he ran to the glory of God. And it paints for us a clear picture that pursuing God does not mean forsaking everything else. God has given us talents, desires, and skills, and they are not made to be the object of our worship, but instead are to be given up in service to him, to be used for him, to glorify him, not to glorify us. What in your life do you similarly feel God's pleasure? Like he has just made you to do something. What has God gifted you with so that you might be a blessing to others? What has he called you to be faithful in to bring glory to him? We're to live life in daily obedience in pursuit of Jesus. And this lifetime adventure is greater than any, any fantasy because the all-loving and powerful, perfect creator of all things calls his, us his own. Paul has shown us this fuel to run the race, and we've seen the practice to run the prize. He concludes with the coaching to cross the finish line in verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if anyone, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul sums up this exhortation by asserting that spiritual maturity is seeing his statements as true. Essentially, if you are mature, then you will realize how, how, much, how, how much you really lack maturity, how not yet mature you really are, and how much you need to strive towards maturity in Christ. To think otherwise is immaturity. Paul uses the pronoun us once again showing his humility. He's not looking down and giving orders himself that he is not willing to follow. 
He said time and time again that he needs to grow as well. He goes on to acknowledge those who might push back or may think otherwise. And he shows where his confidence and trust in. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He knows that many will be encouraged and challenged by his appeal, but those that aren't, he trusts that God will, will show it to them, that his words are true. He knows that true unity in the church comes not from Paul's rhetorical power, but from God's revelation. And so he trusts God with them, even if they don't agree with him. And lastly, he reminds them, only let us hold true to what we have attained. This is not something new, Christian. You have this in Christ already. You don't need to attain it. You already have salvation in him. Now go and run the race before, before you well. I talked earlier about imagining running a race after church today, but now I want you to imagine a much bigger race, bigger than the New York or Boston Marathon, comprised of all Christians from all over the world running together to the celestial city in pursuit of their king. Some of us are lagging at the starting line. Some are slow and steady. Some run in spurts. Some are still picking out their shoes. But in all of this race, we have each other. All of God's redeemed, encouraging each other, lifting each other up, challenging each other to run harder. And I just imagine God, the Holy Spirit, coaching us along the way. Hey, your gait is too long. Let's work on that stride. That sin won't fulfill you. Hey, you're being legalistic. Rest in me. All of us, united in our common pursuit to know Jesus. And one day when our race is finished and we depart from this earth, there will be an even grander gathering. All of God's people, his church, celebrating for eternity with their imperishable prize as children of the King. All as one, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we have a race set before us. Let's run it well with our eye on the finish line. Let's encourage and challenge each other in this race to strain forward and do not look back. He is worthy. Let's pray. Thank you for the, the race that you've set before us, Lord. We thank you that we, as Christians, we do not look back, but can look forward to the upward call of Jesus, Lord. Work in our lives. Um, give us determination and focus with our eye on the finish line. And Lord, may we know that of all the pursuits that we could give our lives to, of all the things that we could do in this good earth, Lord, that you alone are worthy of it all. In your name we pray. Amen.